are entering the Freedom Hut. Team, it is September 11th. We will talk about what this day means and what we should do about it going forward. Coming up on the Buck Sexton Show. This is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. Make no mistake. America. You're a great American. Again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. He's a great guy. It is Buck Sexton. Now. 18 years ago, the terrorists struck this citadel of power and American strength. But the enemy soon learned that they could not weaken the spirit of our people. In times of distress, the heart of the American patriot only grows stronger and more determined. The American people will never forget or ever fail to be inspired by the courage of the men and women of Flight 93. We honor them by remembering them. And we honor them by resolving here and now that we will do as they did, each of us, in all of our varied roles to prevent such evil from ever reaching our shores again. Even in the midst of the attack, the world witnessed the awesome power of American defiance. Forty passengers and crew on Flight 93 rose up, fought back, and thwarted the enemy's wicked plans. In their final moments, these American heroes thunderously declared that we alone decide our fate. We saw American perseverance in the valiant New York firefighters, police officers, first responders, military, and everyday citizens who raced into the crashing towers to rescue innocent people. Welcome to the Buck Saxon Show, everyone. September 11th, the day that we all remember. I'm sure every single one of you uh, recalls exactly where, uh, where you were on that day, uh, what you were thinking. I have told you before, I was uh, walking to a class up at Amherst College. The professor looked at us all very gravely and said that there has been a plane that has run into, uh, has flown into one of the uh, Twin Towers. And I think you should all go back and turn on the news. And we did, and I remember seeing the second plane hit because my, my dorm was right next to the uh, where the classroom was, so I was able to get back very quickly. And I saw that second plane hit, and then I watched and watched and then saw the towers collapse. Uh, born and raised in this city, but... First and foremost, an American, not a New Yorker, I knew that we had been attacked and we were going to war. I remember saying, actually, to my friends, we're going to war. I didn't know against who or what at the time. It just was quite obvious that this was the uh, worst attack we had suffered since Pearl Harbor. I didn't know at the time, but I would end up finding myself in two wars that would uh, result from that day. Uh, one in Iraq, one in Afghanistan. And here we are now, 18 years later, and the memory is very fresh for me. I'm sure it is for many of you as well. I also remember being on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, uh, where I grew up, and seeing the first and only time in my life, I think I still have photos of it somewhere, all up and down the avenue, American flags. 
there was something different in the air. President Trump and Vice President Pence were referring to it today in their remarks. Uh, we knew we had been hit. It was devastating. We lost many thousands of our own. Uh, we also knew that we would rally and that the greatest country, really the greatest civilization the world has ever known, the American civilization, was going to show the world our resolve and not be cowed by this, not be broken by it. And then it led to many people from uh, my generation and a generation or two above me as well joining the fight in one way or another, whether in the military or deciding they wanted to be heroes like those NYPD and FDNY individuals who uh, gave their lives trying to evacuate those towers that day. And then you also had people who saw the courage of what happened on Flight 93 and recognized that it is on all of us to stare down and take action against evil when evil presents itself. It is on all of us to understand that there can be no bystanders when you are faced with a threat like we were that day of uh, Islamic jihadism that viewed itself as in a civilizational war against us and that was seeking our destruction, the downfall of our society, the elimination of our freedoms, and with it, who knows how many generations, not just here in America, but around the world, uh, left to much lesser lives than they would have otherwise had, much less liberty, freedom, prosperity, hope. I still remember very well what it was like that day. I'm sure you do too. I believe some of you, I would, I would assume, were directly affected by what happened. I think that Unfortunately, the country has reached a point now where we don't think of 9-11 the way that we should all the time, which is a reminder of how fragile our liberty really is, that there are people, there are forces in this world that would seek to take it away, and that we have to be willing to meet evil head on, that there is no international body, there is uh, no way of just finding agreement, common ground with everyone all over the world who would otherwise uh, seek to take up arms against us. Sometimes we have to actually meet force with force. 9-11 is a day that we say we will never forget. I think, unfortunately, far too many of our fellow Americans have started to forget it. Um, there is a strain of left-wing ideology in this country. I think the dominant belief among the American left is that we overreacted to 9-11. I even remember on the day of the attacks, I was told by a, or rather in front of the whole school, a professor stood up and claimed that this was a response to U.S. foreign policy, that more or less we got this because we deserved this. That was a sentiment that you heard in some quarters the day it happened and the days after it happened, when it was quite fresh that we had lost almost 3,000 of our own in a cowardly, disgusting, psychotic suicide murder attacks. My friends, this world that we live in now, this, uh, this 
reality that we all inhabit who are in this country of the good guys win. That's only the case because there are good guys who are willing to give their lives so it will continue to be true. And gals, of course. It's only the case because there are people who stand up and are ready to do violence on our behalf to men who would seek to destroy us because of our liberty, because of our freedom. I remember we used to call it the global war on terror. And then after fighting it for a number of years, leftists came along and tried to change it, said we shouldn't call it that. It's a fight against a tactic. And then there were even movies that were made that seemed to want to shift this into being a, almost a natural disaster. It was not a natural disaster. It was a day that the United States was hit with evil. And we were caught napping. Let's be very clear about it. We were not prepared for what was coming our way. That's another lesson we should never forget. It's certainly something that we had never experienced since Pearl Harbor. And I hope we never have to experience it again. I hope that my children, your children, and so forth never have to have a day where they wonder, is the world ever going to be the same? And is it only going to get worse from here? I had that thought. I thought maybe we would be involved in endless wars, mass casualties, uh, massive casualties on our side. Who, who knew where this was really going to go? What if the enemy had gotten weapons of mass destruction already? What if they had acquired nuclear material? What if they were going to destroy a U.S. city? Unleash biological weapons that could kill thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands or more. What does the world look like then? What happens to global markets? What happens to rule of law? It was a scary day. It's very easy now to look back on it and think, well, we were going to be fine. We're the most powerful country in the world. And then you get into this lulling ourselves into a, a sense of false security today as if this could not happen again, as if there's no scenario in which the United States could be the victim of a sneak attack that kills thousands and upends our very way of life and makes us feel at a core level deeply unsafe. Makes us all worry if the future that we thought we would have as Americans was really going to be ours anymore. So I wish that they would spend an hour every year replaying exactly what happened in that first hour of the attack on the various news channels. I think that would be a way to... Uh, pay proper homage here, in addition to the uh, different memorials. and But uh, I think that that's something that we will, we will forget what it really felt like that day as time passes. And there are lessons that we should never, ever forget. We'll get into more of this uh, team in, in just a moment. Stay with me. My son, Kenneth Joseph Marino. Being a firefighter is not a job, it's a calling. Not everyone can do what a firefighter does, and especially what they did on September 11th. Running into burning buildings when everyone else was running out, knowing that they may not make it out themselves. Yet they continued to do what they were called upon to do and saved many lives on that horrific day. As we all know, many firefighters did not make it out, and my son Kenny was one of them. He left behind his wife, a 20-month-old son, and a three-year-old daughter. 
but his spirit lives within his children, and he would be so proud of them today. While we are humbled by Kenny's actions and the actions of all the first responders, 18 years has not lessened our loss. Our lives have been forever changed, but we hold on to and cherish the moments we all shared. I remember during my time at the NYPD Intelligence Division, occasionally there would be some reference by NYPD veterans, guys who have been in the force a long time. They would, it would just come up uh, that they knew somebody who was in the tower that day, that they uh, lost one of, one of ours, they would say, one of the uh, police officers who rushed into the buildings, tried to evacuate people. And it's very likely, I mean, they, they can never know the exact number, but the estimates are that our first responders, law enforcement, saved perhaps a few thousand lives that day by the orderly evacuation. Um, it's difficult. It's traumatic when you go back and read the transcripts, listen to uh, just exactly what happened then. I, I today uh, heard a uh, voicemail you know they had these voicemails that were left behind of people that were on one of the planes that after it was clear they were being hijacked and used as weapons and that it was unlikely that anybody on the plane was going to survive and uh that choked me up today actually still does just thinking about it So you have to, at some level, go back there. You have to remind yourself of exactly what we faced and what happened and the losses that we sustained. But then you also have to take away from it the, uh, the bravery that was on display by our own, uh, the first responders, the uh, Todd Beamer and those with him on Flight 93 that day. It was a reminder that we are never uh, we are never without recourse. That uh, the bravery of the righteous can overcome anything. Uh, but man, NYPD, FDNY—they were—they were never really quite the same after that in terms of cherishing. I think the work that each and every one of them was doing every day. There was a feeling here in the city. I came to New York soon after 9/11. There was a sense that this country had come together. And I do think we miss that sometimes now. I think we miss it a lot. It didn't last all that long. And we're going to talk about the politics of this in a moment because there are idiot leftists out there, including members of Congress and also major media outlets that have acted like fools today. Total fools. And what's perhaps even more unsettling is they've shown us what they really think of 9-11. That they still don't get it. Uh, or perhaps they reject some very important realities of that day. Uh, there is a, a movement right now. I, I, I cannot even, I can't say it without getting angry, but I'll just tell you. Today you had over at CNN on the anniversary of 9-11 doing a, a quote reality check under the headline America's 9-11 amnesia and then the in the big screen behind one of their uh, one of their anchors was right wingers are America's deadliest terrorists. That's right. On today of all days, we have to be told this uh, this idiotic lie. It is not true 
Um, but we have to be told that conservatives are the real threat. You had 19 hijackers, 15 of them from Saudi Arabia, 19 of them Muslims. And we have to be told that it is, it is our own domestic American conservatism that we should all be worried about. And there were some corrections that different media outlets have had to make in the last few days that I think were particularly illuminating. Perhaps uh, foremost among them was the New York Times today. This was, you, you couldn't, if you thought, if you said this might happen, people would tell you, no, they're not that obvious of, about trying to make this seem like it was a natural disaster, like this wasn't the result of an enemy that had been at war with us for a long time. In fact, really an ideology that has been at war with us, with America, in one form or another, stretching back to the founding. You can go back to the war against the Barbary pirates, Jefferson and Adams, and the emissary from the Barbary states uh, telling our own secretary of state that they make war on us because the Koran tells them that they can and that we are infidels and that that is just the way it is going to be. A lot of people reject this history and say that that's not really uh, something that we need to focus on. I mean, I didn't learn anything about the Barbary pirates in school. I've had to learn on my own. The New York Times, meanwhile, has a different view of what happened that day, it seems, because they shared from their official Twitter account on September 11th today, earlier today, 18 years have passed since airplanes took aim and brought down the World Trade Center. Today, families will once again gather and grieve at the site where more than 2,000 people died. Airplanes took aim, folks. It was those rogue airplanes... Perhaps there was a mechanical failure on all of them at once. Something must have gone wrong in the airplanes because they took aim, these inanimate objects. No, 19 human beings who are part of a coherent, aggressive, colonialist and world dominating, if they get their way, ideology came up with a plan to try to ruin this country where people live in freedom and happiness and, and decency in civilized fashion. They tried to ruin that. It was human beings. It was an enemy. It was an ideology. It was radical Islam. New York Times wanted us to forget that today. I have to ask why. How could they make that mistake? We'll get into that. Care was founded after 9-11 because they recognized that some people did something and that all of us were starting to lose access to our civil liberties. Some people did something. A sitting member of the United States Congress, Democrat from Minnesota. Some people did something. I think it's a pretty big damn thing that they did. And a horrible one. And a life-altering, life-taking, in so many thousands of cases, one. But this mentality this uh, idea that there should be a a revisiting a a revisionism around 9-11 it's not new it's been there for quite some time and there are people on the left who have never really been honest about what happened that day there are many people in the democratic party who still think that uh, the biggest problem 
was in fact the Islamophobia that resulted from 9-11. Now, I will tell you this, and I've, I've said it uh, in years past on radio, and I think, it's, I think it bears repeating. The fact that we had 19 uh, hijackers, all of whom were Muslim, engage in this mass casualty attack, this act of war and cowardice against the American people, and there were so few cases, I'm not saying there were none, but so few cases of uh, retaliation, of uh, you know, violent bigotry against the Muslim community in this country is just a testament to who we are as people, who we are as Americans. We recognize that every individual is only, in, is only responsible for his or her actions. You don't punish people because someone else did something who looks like them, prays like them, comes from the same place as them. That would be immoral, and you can't fight immorality by becoming evil yourself. But I don't think we get enough credit as a country, if anything, for that. Um, that it was a reminder of just how, how decent and tolerant and kind and, and, generally speaking, loving the American people are to each other day to day. Instead, the narrative you often hear from the left is, well, there was a rise in hate crimes that we, you know, that, that's the biggest threat. Today, the New York Times had uh, a whole page of editorials that had only one, only one editorial on September 11th, on the anniversary of this attack, that even dealt with the attack. And it was to talk about uh, the first person perspective of somebody who was concerned about the otherness and loss of civil liberties that he uh, was concerned about as a Muslim American. That's it. Nothing about the sacrifice of uh, so many who served in our military, who went over to root out these terrorists, which was absolutely needed. It was the right response to go into Afghanistan and eradicate Al Qaeda and their Taliban hosts. Uh, we lost people in that fight. And yes, there were a lot of terrorists, by the way, in Iraq as well. We could talk about whether they showed up after Saddam fell or whether they were there in the first place. Depends on who and what we're, what we're looking at specifically. But some of the most evil jihadists imaginable were taken off the battlefield in Iraq as well. And that was by our military, particularly our special operations community going after high-value targets. But yes, there are liberals today who would rather move past this and pretend that it was something other than what it was. Uh, it was a natural disaster. It was aberrant. It had nothing to do with Islamic radicalism specifically. It was just this one group, this one small subset of radical Islam that attacked us on that day and maybe u.s foreign policy had been a little too hubristic for a while and this was a way of keeping us in check there are liberals who make those arguments there are leftists who believe this stuff i, I can't imagine anybody saying in reference to 9-11 you know some people skipping past it like it's a footnote some people did something and this from someone who had to flee a country that is a mess to come to this country, which welcomed her not just with open arms, but made her a member of our elected body. 
But 9-11's a footnote. 9-11 is something that you just reference in passing as though it was really just in the, in the course of normal American history and things happen. Some people did something. Stunning. But there's a lot that you can look to today to show you that the politics of 9-11 are still being fought out in public. Um, there are leftist media organizations that really think that they should focus, they should use 9-11 to focus on the real threat, which is Trump's fascism and right-wing extremism. And as I've done before, if we're going to talk about where we have to look for the real threat of terrorism, let's look, for example, at um, the percentage of the population that would be uh, fall under, under the, the white conservative male that the media outlets want to tell us is the main terrorist threat and then the percentage of the population that would fall under what could be radical Islam. And then you crunch the numbers, you say, wow, there's definitely a disparity here, isn't there? Um, but that's perhaps a conversation we'll get into more another day. But it's a hard day today. I, I really mean that. I, I think about, I go back in my mind every year, and I'm not particularly active on, uh, on social media. I don't, I don't write a reflection every year. My reflection is this. It's this show and what I consider throughout the day, and like so many of you, how it changed my life. I remember before 9-11, I thought America was just, the good guys had won, and everything, the world was just going to keep getting better and wealthier and safer and happier. And the fights that my generation would have would be around you know, minor things or, or manageable domestic things. You know, how do we almost entirely eliminate violent crime? How do we make sure that you know, everybody has access to you know, a good home and education and all the things that we talk about as a country all the time? And then this happened. And a few million of my fellow Americans answered the call and decided that they were going to show up and fight for their country. I have to say, for all this talk that you hear, it has become uh, very commonplace to have all this stuff about how, you know, millennial, oh, millennials this and millennials that. And millennials are so bratty. And Okay, well, I'm technically a millennial, and I know a lot of millennials that said, sign me up. For my country, I will give my life. You tell me where to go. You tell me where the bad guys are. Let's do this. To borrow from Todd Beamer, let's roll. I think we have to remember those millennials and Gen X and Gen Y and boomers and everybody else who showed up. But um, I'm part of what I think you could term the 9-11 generation. People who were adults and of military fighting age when this thing happened. And there were a lot of people who their lives changed and people also gave their lives in response to this one event this one day. It is a formative, a formative day for America, one that will be with us forever. And it's a question of what we do as a result and how we go forward. So we must remember what the attack was, who came after us and why, and then take courage and take some degree of, of hope from the fact that we rallied as the nation that we know we are. And man, we should be proud of all those who served and, and took the fight to the enemy. And also just proud of the way that America responded as a country. Overwhelmingly, 
uh, we rallied as one. All right, let's talk about uh, a little bit of the aftermath of the Bolton situation. I've got more for you. Stay with me. Some people did something, said a freshman congresswoman from Minnesota, to support and justify the creation of care. Today I am here to respond to you exactly who did what to whom. Madam, objectively speaking, we know who and what was done. There is no uncertainty about that. Why your confusion? On that day, 19 Islamic terrorist members of Al-Qaeda killed over 3,000 people and caused billions of dollars of economic damage. Is that clear? But as to whom? I was attacked. Your relatives and friends were attacked. Our constitutional freedoms were attacked. And our nation's founding on Judeo-Christian principles were attacked. That's what some people did. Got that now? We are here today, Congresswoman, to tell you and the squad just who did what to whom. Show respect in honoring them, please. American patriotism and your position demanded. For God and country, amen. So 9-11 victim's son there calling out the words of a representative Omar today at a 9-11 remembrance ceremony. I just, I thought you should hear those words. So I told you we would talk about Bolton. I don't want to talk about it much more. Just a, a couple minutes and then we'll move on to some other things. The war in Afghanistan, ending the war in Afghanistan, which I think is uh, in some ways the, would be the most uh, fitting takeaway after this week of remembrance would be, okay, let's remember what happened. And then let's also remember that we should not expend one more life in that country than is absolutely necessary. We've had too many losses already. Too much mission creep, too much drift, too much lack of focus. Lack of a strategic imperative. Enough is enough. But then you have to think about who makes these decisions and who's in charge. Uh, Bolton, and uh, I, I think you know where I stand on Bolton in general, but uh, all of a sudden now, the left is very concerned. The Democrats are so concerned. How could you get rid of Bolton? If you had asked any Democrat six months ago, what do you think of Ambassador John Bolton? They would, or National Security Advisor slash Ambassador Bolton. They would have said, you know, he's a madman, wants to invade countries, he's bloodthirsty, he's a warmonger. They would have said all kinds of horrible things. Ah, but this week, this news cycle, there's some possibility that attacking Bolton is a way, or rather defending Bolton is a way of attacking Trump. And so it all changes. Actually, they say Bolton's like really smart and an adult in the room and getting rid of him is a terrible thing for Trump to do. Just goes to show that Trump is in disarray and you can't trust his judgment and doesn't know anything, doesn't understand anything. And you have, for example, Senator Chris Coons was very upset at the prospect of, the, or rather at the news of Bolton's firing. 
Well, Bolton was uh, President Trump's third national security advisor. Um, obviously, um, Flynn had the briefest tenure. Um, I think there's a lot that we need to know about what caused this abrupt firing by tweet of the president's national security advisor, what the policy differences were, um, and what this means about stability, um, America's place in the world, and the decision-making team that surrounds our president. This is all nonsense. First of all, the little swipe that he took at Flynn, who was set up by deep staters at the DOJ, DOJ and FBI, people like Sally Yates, who abused the spirit of the law, if not the letter of the law, in order to take out someone they politically disapproved of. It was disgusting what they did to Flynn. I don't care if you lied or not. He never should have been put in that position in the first place. But here you have uh, uh, Senator Kuhn saying, that uh, we have to worry about stability. Well, you could have one national security advisor for a really long time. It doesn't mean that any decisions are good. And this is also where people have a very limited understanding, including uh, members of Congress. Most people in Congress who talk about foreign policy are uh, intellectual dilettantes on the subject at best. They're not knowledgeable. They're not thoughtful. They don't know history. They don't know policy. They just know what they have to say to stay in good stead with their own party and to keep the you know donation dollars rolling in and get reelected. That's what they're concerned about when it comes to foreign policy. They're really not thoughtful on the issue at all. I'm, I'm actually usually deeply unimpressed with Congress on matters of, of statecraft abroad. Most members of Congress. Um, I have on some issues really very much uh, agreed with Senator Lindsey Graham, sometimes on foreign policy, we do not particularly see eye to eye, although I think his foreign policy changes quite a bit. I do agree with him on this. Whether Bolton resigned or was fired, it doesn't matter. He's darn right on that one. Did John Bolton resign or the president fire? I don't know. And again, I don't think it matters. I think he served honorably and I appreciate his service to our country. And the president has a right to choose a Somebody has trust in, and uh, we'll get a new national security advisor here soon. Plenty of people can do this job. There are a lot of folks who have fantastic, uh, you know, intellectual, academic, and service credentials to do this job. You know, they've served their country in one role or another, and would be an excellent. Remember, this is an advisory role to the president. The president's got plenty of advisors. There's lots of information out there for him to to glean. Uh, And this is not some crisis. They want to make it seem like, oh, my gosh, without Bolton disarray. How many White House disarray stories have you seen? Has any of it mattered? You know, does it matter that they told uh, Tillerson to, to pack his bags and hit the road? Does it matter they told Scaramucci Arrivederci? I mean, does it matter that they... Booted, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know who I can't even think of. Uh, what's his name? Kelly. I mean, these people served. Some of them longer than others. Some of them more honorably than others. But they served, and then the president's like, "I don't want you to do this anymore. Go do something else." That's it. They try to overcomplicate this with these stories of, "Oh, there's a lack of stability." There are tons of people in D.C. and across the country who could be very fit advisors for the president on national security where this is not a crisis it's not a problem the only crisis is that my phone hasn't rung yet president trump i don't know what to tell you buddy i'm here for you you need me be a lot better than bolton i'll tell you that much i'll be right back 
We had peace talks scheduled a few days ago. I called them off when I learned that they had killed a great American soldier from Puerto Rico and 11 other innocent people. They thought they would use this attack to show strength, but actually what they showed is unrelenting weakness. The last four days, we have hit our enemy harder than they have ever been hit before, and that will continue. And if for any reason they come back to our country, we will go wherever they are and use power the likes of which the United States has never used before. And I'm not even talking about nuclear power. They will never have seen anything like what will happen to them. President Trump is right on the very important, very fundamental position here of ending the war in Afghanistan. In my opinion, it needs to be done. Um, I also understand what that would mean. And I have said to you, we should all be quite clear on this. I did not agree with the president inviting the Taliban to Camp David, but perhaps he thought that that was just going to get the final, you know, that final piece in place for a truce. Um, I did not think that was the right move, but I think that he's right on the much more important issue of what should happen now. How should we end America's longest ever war? And whatever agreements that we have from the Taliban, assurances we receive from the Taliban, we should be very clear on this. It is likely they will break some, if not all of it. It is likely that they will uh, double cross whatever diplomatic agreements we reach. It's just a question of when they think it's in their interest to do it, how long we wait for it to happen, and how bad the damage is when it happens. Um, But that's where we are. The alternative, though, is to just continue to think that if we have about 10,000 or so troops stationed in this country, uh, things are going to get better. They're not going to get better. Um, We need to be willing to say that we will end the war in Afghanistan. Remember, the Taliban's not in charge now. We've done a tremendous amount, spent so many billions of dollars mentoring, training, assisting Afghan military, Afghan police. At some point, you have to take the training wheels off this country and let it ride on its own. And I think we're there. And if something goes wrong, and I do believe there's a very decent chance that that may be the case, if something does in fact go wrong, uh, we know this going into it, that there is that risk. So I do believe that President Trump is... Uh, is correct in trying to end this end this war in Afghanistan. But I also think that, and people have asked me why. Why do I feel differently, for example, about the uh, troop presence in Iraq than I did about uh, troops uh, troops in Afghanistan rather versus Iraq? And I would just say that in the case of Iraq, you have a much uh, you had a much more established central government bureaucracy infrastructure. Uh, Iraq compared to Afghanistan was a much more developed country and had far greater resources. Remember, Iraq has a lot of oil, folks. Iraq, uh, Iraq is not is not some you know dirt poor third world country that uh, can't get any revenues going. I mean, they're, they're doing they're doing. I think in recent years they've gotten up upwards of uh, you know eighty or ninety billion dollars in oil revenue. 
And it might be even higher than that now. I should probably check and see exactly what it is. But, you know, Afghanistan is nothing like that. In fact, the only real revenue stream that Afghanistan has ever had that started to feel like it could go in that direction was the illegal heroin trade through the uh, opium uh, uh, poppies that they were growing. So I've got to tell you, it's just a different it's a different country. It's a different situation just because those are two wars that we that uh, that we started or in the case of Afghanistan, we retaliated. But those are two wars that happened uh, close to each other. It doesn't mean that they're similar strategic situations. It doesn't mean that the likelihood of success is the same in both places. And we've done everything we can do in Afghanistan. I have not heard one person credibly say that the outcome in Afghanistan is likely to be different if we stay longer. I haven't heard a single person take that position. Not one. What does that tell you? What does that mean to you? Have we learned the lesson? This is a time for this discussion. It is uh, the day of September 11th. We remember what it was to be attacked on that day. We have been in Afghanistan for almost 20 years. I think that Trump's warning to anyone who would use Afghanistan again as a platform for a similar attack is well put. I think that's exactly what our position should be. I mean, I'm here in New York City. I grew up in this town. Um, those were Amer- It was America who was attacked on that day, but it was New Yorkers who were, and D.C. area residents for the most part. I know there are also people on the plains uh, who comprised the mass of the casualties. And if we got hit again anywhere in this country or anywhere around the world that killed Americans in, in a mass casualty attack, and we found out that it was because the Taliban was harboring them, uh, we're going to go back and our, our ferocity is going to be a thing that people will, uh, I think, be a bit astonished at for the ages. But that's what we should do. Otherwise, we're just going to be in this country forever trying to make it a better place than it is. It's not on us. We can't make them have a decent civil society. We can't make them have a, a country with rule of law. I mean, I would just point to, I would point to uh, look at the situation, say, in, uh, in Japan or in France after the Second World War. Uh, those are countries that got up and running very quickly after the war. And both have done very well since then. But they were far more established nation states much further along developmentally in terms of their civil society in terms of their national identity look afghanistan has a big problem with where the loyalty of the population really lies is it to tribe or is it to country if you are a pashtun from the south from helmand from kandahar do you care more about fellow pashtuns or do you care about what the central government in kabul tells you these are problems for them to work out, not for us to work out. So I do think that President Trump is uh, is correct here, and he's going to get a lot of heat. I also worry that there are some people with very loud voices in this in this debate uh, who have not just ideological, but maybe even financial incentives for us to stay. And as difficult as that even to just think about anyone trying to direct U.S. foreign policy toward a continued military presence where we're taking casualties, where we're having to engage the enemy because of dollars and cents. It's a real thing, unfortunately. And I do believe that there are some out there who would like to see a continued presence in Afghanistan for that reason. But 
Trump wants to get us out. I hope he's I hope he's successful. There, there's no better takeaway from this uh, this week in terms of an immediate policy response than ending the war in Afghanistan. I try to keep my politics separate from the stuff that I write, the stories, because I think people like story. People want story. And, you know, if they want the news, they want, the you know, the stuff they can go on and, and get on MSNBC or they can go on Fox or whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. But sometimes life comes along and imitates art yeah. instead of the other way around. And as I was rewriting this book all at once, I find out we're locking little kids up in cages yeah. on the border. And I'm thinking to myself, this is like my book. Wow. Wow. That's Stephen King. I've never read a Stephen King book, so I'll just be honest with you. i never read a novel by Stephen King, uh, so I can't speak to whether they're worthwhile or not. I know he's been very, very, very successful uh, financially. He sold a lot of books. But I thought that was it was interesting. One, that you, you catch this with a lot of uh, a lot of liberals out there in the entertainment media where they say, well, you know, I understand I should be entertaining people. But then I, I, something so important comes along. Something so important comes along that uh, I had to just make a connection to politics. I, I couldn't. Stand back from it. And I, I tell you, these days, I just don't even want to know sometimes because it'll, it'll ruin something for me to find out that an individual involved in it, you know, will say, well, you know, I don't even clearly in the Trump era. This is why we need to know. You know, it's always this is why I won't watch the what's the show where the women go around in the bonnets, you know, because they're all they're all super oppressed. They're actually oppressed. But unlike women in America today. Uh, but uh, what, what you know, what I'm talking about the show with the the bonnets and the weird like look like a bunch of Puritans. Handmaid's Tale, the Handmaid's. I, I refuse to watch it because it's all oh, this is what would happen if Mike Pence were president. No, no, no. All right, let's not be completely insane. Mike Pence is a very nice man, a very nice family. He's not going to make America into the Handmaid's Tale. He couldn't even if he wanted to, and he doesn't want to. So what are we even talking about? But I digress. Uh, Stephen King here is saying that, you know, he has a story, and I don't even know what it is, that there's a crossover or there's a connection between, you know, kids in cages. And some of you who watched when I was on Bill Maher a few weeks or now about a month ago, and the former governor of Michigan, Jennifer Granholm, at one point just turned, I was trying to talk to Bill about immigration and, and talk about it. I wasn't. I wasn't, you know, shouting or being aggressive or anything. She just turned to me and just yelled, kids in cages, kids in cages. As though that was the argument ender that she had been looking for all night. And I looked at her like this person was a governor of a major state, Michigan. We got to have a talk, Michigan. Wherever you are, we got to have a chat about how. Well, then again, you're probably like, yeah, but you're in New York. Where the Cuomo's are a dynasty and they run everything. And if you don't like it, the lesser Cuomo will threaten to ruin your bleep and bleeping throw you down a flight of bleeping stairs because he's a bleeping CNN anchor. Do not call him Fredo. So I guess it's not fair to hold Michigan responsible for uh, its governor if we're not going to hold New York responsible for its governor, Governor Cuomo. Oh, my. I feel like one day I'm going to meet him and he's going to be like, are you the one who does the very loud and stupid impersonation of me? 
Nobody needs a bazooka to kill a squirrel. We need bazooka reform now. Some of you remember that, too. He didn't exactly say that. It's a little bit of an exaggeration, but he did give quite a speech about that back in the day. But you have uh, Granholm looked at me and said that about kids in cages. Stephen King is talking about how art imitates life or life imitates art or whatever it is with a book he wrote in kids in cages. And to this, I, I always want to ask, and I, I really mean this, it would be an interesting exercise for me if I could get one of these libs that is so just freaked out about what's going on at our southern border with the enforcement of existing immigration laws. I would like to walk them through what is really happening there and ask what they think the policy should be. Because I think what you would invariably find out from some very loud and opinionated leftists on the matter of immigration is that anything short of open borders is going to be insufficient for them. Meaning any real enforcement of our immigration laws is unacceptable. But the moment you say to them, but you are for open borders, there's a no, I'm not. No, of course not. I can't have that. All right. Well, that means that people don't just get to show up and not everyone who comes here, especially those who come here in violation of laws, are going to get to stay. And if they don't get to stay, that means you have to deport them. And if you're going to deport them, you have to detain them. If you're going to detain them, you have to arrest them. And if you're going to arrest them, you do have to hold them in some form of of restricted movement facility, which is going to involve fences or wires or walls or whatever. Not cages per se, but some form of restricted movement domicile, you're going to have to. Or else, well, we're on the honor system. Yeah, show up tomorrow. We're going to have a bus here and we're going to deport you. If you don't show up, we're going to find you. We're going to ask you again because we can't detain you. That's mean. We can't hold you in a facility that you don't want to be in that's not comfortable and, and where things you know, aren't the way you'd lo- like them to be. And the reality, when I, was in the, uh, when I was at the border in, at Tijuana and San Diego, the Border Patrol told me that some of the illegals that would cross over and surrender, remember, that's illegal. You can't do that. It's, it's, cutting, it's quite literally cutting the line because you're supposed to go to a port of entry and wait at that port of entry, and if there's too many people at the port of entry that day, you got to come back the next day. If you surrender, it means you just walk across the border and say, here I am, that's illegal. Because we have a system, because there are rules. But I remember the Border Patrol agents telling me in San Diego that they would have illegals show up and would start demanding, I mean, they would demand uh, food right away. And they'd have to, they, the, the Border Patrol agents were being told, you know, so when are you, when are you bringing me, before they've even been processed, when are you bringing me my food? As if they're like a maitre d' service for illegal aliens. I'm being serious. They told me that this happened. Oh, wow. I mean, that's, you don't, you don't hear that story in the mainstream media, do you? you know, yeah, go into McDonald's. I, I, know, I know you're supposed to arrest me because that's what you do when someone breaks the law. Uh, for violating the sovereign territory of America and breaking U.S. federal law. I know you're supposed to arrest me, but really, I know that Pelosi and the Democrats and AOC are calling the shots here. So why don't you, Border Patrol, go get me a McDonald's sandwich and I'll wait here. Thanks. That's a thing that has happened. 
So while we're always being told, oh, it's about kids in cages, Stephen King is claiming that he's clearly he's clearly making a a comparison between a, a horror movie or horror book or whatever it is uh, and the Trump administration. I, I just would like to know what is supposed. Uh, let, let's take the kids in cages out of the out of the equation for a second, because it has been out of the equation because they don't hold children separately from their families anymore. What is the acceptable uh, degree of enforcement at our border? What should the law say? Should the law be that anybody who shows up across our border just gets to stay? So, oh, no, 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 they have a process. Okay, what if they don't show up for the process? Do they get deported? And what if after they show up for the process, they don't get what they want, which is a legal claim to stay in America? Do they then get deported? If you're going to keep saying no, then you're just you're you're at an open border status and you should as a Democrat, as a lib and some Republicans like this stuff. You should just admit that. But they never have any answers about it. They just like the moral posturing of we don't want kids in cages as Democrats. Republicans do. They're the bad guys. Trump is the ultimate bad guy because of this. All right. Well, that has that that policy, which was just enforcing the laws on the books and if anyone in this country gets arrested and they have a baby with them, you know what's going to happen? There's going to be a separation from that infant. There's going to be a separation from that child. That's what happens to citizens every day in this country. So there's a different set of laws, I suppose, we're supposed to uh, accept for illegal aliens. Um, I, I'm not there yet. I'm not willing to just accept that. And I do think that if we were just able to have liberals sit down, if we could just talk to them a bit more about what it is that they really want to happen at the border, a lot of them would recognize that they've just been fed lies, and a lot of them would recognize that, no, they're for open borders. At least then we would have honesty. Right now what we have is talking points, moral grandstanding, and people like Stephen King saying Trump has created a, a, you know, a nightmare at our border worthy of one of my books. It's just not true. There's also been, when it comes to communities of immigrants, an undercurrent of, of racism or nativism uh, that, that was always under the surface to some degree. Not that um, that was unfelt by the people against whom it was directed, but at least we attempted to form a more perfect union. We attempted to uh, live by the ideals that, that, that were foundational to the country, that were all created equal. We never quite got there, but we never stopped trying until now where you have a president who is so openly nativist and racist. Beto just says the same thing every day. I don't know when he assumes that this is going to be profound. I don't know when he thinks this is going to be a thing that all of a sudden uh, we're going to pay attention to Beto. But this is the the dumbest talking point that you will hear from the left is just some variation of OMG, Trump and the Republicans are so racist and this country has to deal with its legacy of racism. And let's just talk more about racism and how racist everything is. This is the this is the most brainless thing that you will hear from all the Democrat candidates all the time. They just do different variations on the theme of, you know, oh, well, you know, I oppose racism, therefore I'm a good person. Republicans oppose racism, too. I, I've said this before, and I, I think that maybe it uh, doesn't really bear repeating on this show. But the, the truth is, because I've said it so many times, uh, racism is anti-conservative. You can't believe in individual dignity, individual rights, 
that we are created in God's image and that we are all equal as human beings, things that you, you must think if you're a conservative, because if, if that's not true, then why do we have inalienable rights? Why are we created in God's image? I mean, if we're not all equal, then that doesn't make, that doesn't make any sense. You have to believe that every individual human being is uh, of equal worth as a human being to every other in the eyes of the law and in the eyes of God. Otherwise, what is conservatism based on? Because why not just have a a super state then? Because human beings have no inherent dignity. Uh, There's there's this separation based on where we're from and everything. No, it is anti-conservative to be to be racist. And we've done so much in this country to overcome racism. And and also, if if we're going to really look at this for a moment, the truth is we actually get along really well as a country and as a country that is quite diverse. And I'm, I'm here in New York City and I'm walking around on the streets. I'm on the subway. You see people from every country, every color, ethnicity, race, you name it here. And we're all just walking around doing our things. No one's, you know, stopping and noticing. And, oh, look at that person. I mean, that just doesn't happen here. It really feels like Beto O'Rourke and the Democrats on, on the on the race issue. It's like they've created a fake version of America, a version of America that's not what we're experiencing every day. And this is why I think they've largely transitioned to one saying that the president is racist all the time, even though the president will say he's not racist. He believes all people are equal. He thinks that racism is terrible. Uh, I wish that they would stop lying about what he said at Charlottesville. They they will not stop lying about it. This is now it's an unfortunate case study in how repetition by an anti-Trump media can overcome the fact just you can do it yourself. Look at the transcript of what was said, what Trump said in Charlottesville. No honest person could read that transcript and say, oh, he was praising white nationalists. He explicitly said, I am not praising white nationalists, but but they still pretend that he was praising white nationalists. That's the storyline that you always get. If racism in this country was so bad, maybe we wouldn't have so many race uh, race hoaxes that occur. As we know, this is a much greater frequency than the lib media ever wants to admit to if racism was so bad in this country, maybe they wouldn't have to manufacture evidence of it from the president and uh, the Republican Party, which is what they do on a regular basis. Um, But I I sit here and I just say to you, I really hope that Beto O'Rourke is gone soon because it's pathetic now. It's not it's not cute really anymore. It's not funny. I mean, I know I like to do the Beto impression, but this is a guy who has abandoned any sense of decency and fairness in his campaign to the other side, to the other side's ideas. Uh, and it, it's just all it's all posturing and nonsense. You know, I mean, this is a guy who, first of all, his whole affect of, you know, I'm Beto. No, you're you're Robert Francis O'Rourke, man. Like this, this thing is is if he wasn't first of all, if he wasn't a Democrat, he would not. It would not be okay for him to pick up what would be considered an ethnic Latino um, name like this and use it. If you were a Republican, people would mock him for this. or I mean, They wouldn't even mock him. They would say it's a problem. They would criticize him uh, all the time. So you, you have to also remember that. You have to keep that in mind here. He gets a pass on this because I know he's been called it for a long time, whatever. He still gets a pass on it um, because he is... A Democrat, as we know. Speaking of Democrats, 
there's some movement here with Elizabeth Warren, who is all of a sudden. Here is what uh, Jim Cramer over at CNBC had to say about a uh, Warren presidency from the perspective of Wall Street, guys. Play it. I, look, I've got to tell you, when you get off the desk and you talk to executives, they're more fearful of her winning. I mean, I've never heard anybody say, look, I, uh, she's got to be stopped. She's got to be stopped. I, I don't know. It's, she's very, uh, she keeps going up in the polls. Uh, she's raised a ton of money. She's uh, going to win Iowa, time. I believe. Uh, she's a very compelling figure on the stump. By the way, uh, I hear it too, and it's another reason why... Companies are being implored to do things now. If you want to get something done, you really think M and A or anything, think about doing it soon because come early to mid 2020, if Elizabeth Warren's rolling along, everybody's going to be like, "That's it." So you're hearing it too. Oh yeah. I wonder what China says about that exact question. Oh yeah. Boy, she is so anti-pollution in China. They're all saying they're worried about Elizabeth Warren on Wall Street. I got to tell you, I, I'm. I don't buy it. I don't buy it. I mean, maybe they're worried, but I don't think that they have anything really to be worried about. And, and here's why. Uh, Elizabeth Warren is very much a, a transactional progressive. She's someone who has made a very nice living for herself as a uh, law professor, making uh, about a quarter million dollars a year, I think, just to teach one class a week. That's a nice gig. I would take, you know, can't get fired, making a quarter of a million dollars getting up in front of a classroom and saying a bunch of stuff that's probably not even particularly useful from a legal perspective, but, you know, she's Elizabeth Warren, so first uh, Cherokee law professor on the Harvard faculty. She had that going for her, which is nice. But here's a reminder about the Democratic Party. Uh, the Democratic Party is full of rich There are plenty of rich people in the Democratic Party. In fact, Wall Street overwhelmingly gives uh you know the biggest firms goldman sachs and others they give to hillary clinton last time around they're they're not this is one of these myths that we have to deal with on the right that will never go away and that is that the uh the rich are republican it's just not true there are rich people in both parties right the, oh the republican billionaires funding everything yeah what about soros what about tom steyer what about you know go down the list what about Oprah? What about Steven Spielberg? I mean, you got all these people who are fabulously wealthy, huge libs, huge libs. Uh, the liberals have plenty, plenty of money. And yet we hear this story about how Wall Street is Republican. Wall Street is in its politics left of center uh, and in its based on its giving. I mean, I'm not guessing about this. This is where, you know, this is where the, the money goes. And that's because, yeah, they don't want higher taxes, but the tax issue is less important than the regulatory climate and environment. And the very big firms just want to make sure that whoever wins, they're going to be taken care of. Big government loves big business because big, big government sees big business as a means of instituting uh, policies that it wants. It, it, it can make it complicit in the expansion of government in many ways. And remember, the regulatory burden, a lot of the anti-competitive measures that come into play when you're talking about 
a big government apparatus, which is what Elizabeth Warren, we already have too much of that, but Elizabeth Warren would want to dramatically expand it. But Goldman Sachs is going to make plenty of money no matter what. Goldman Sachs employees are going to go home with fat paychecks regardless of what Elizabeth Warren says she wants to do, whatever tax she puts in place. Uh, and, and there are a lot of ways, I think, that you could argue that the people that are going to get hurt are those who are trying to be up-and-comers, going to be competitors. They're the ones that have to deal with, oh, now there's all these new accounting regulations. Now there's all these new you know, legal and, and administrative hurdles to trying to compete with, with some of these mega banks. But the mega banks, the mega corporations, I mean, look at that. You've got GE was practically a subsidiary of the Democratic Party for years. For years. Goldman Sachs, Democrats. I mean, if you find me, Facebook, Google, these are, these are Democrat companies. You know, where's the, uh, where's this evidence that you would think would exist of Republican, uh, Republican Party dominance in the corporate sphere? It's just not there. I, I, I wish, you know, I wish that we could get past this, but they'll continue to say this. Elizabeth Warren will do Wall Street's bidding because Elizabeth Warren is going to want powerful, influential people. Um, and, and she's going to tr- make a show of doing bad stuff to Wall Street. Oh, you know, she's going to clean it up and everything else. That's all crap. And think about it this way. Think about this. What's happened to the health insurers post Obamacare? Have they have they all gone bankrupt? Oh, but, but the Democrats talk about how they hate the big, bad health insurers. Oh, they're terrible. They're taking all this profits. Actually, their profits percentage-wise are relatively small, but you know, I'm not somebody that loves the health insurance companies. I think they do do some shady stuff sometimes. That said, they're a bad guy, according to Democrats, and yet, have you seen the health insurers uh, suffering a lot of pain? And the, No. They did Obama's, you know, they, they agreed to go along with Obama's whole Affordable Care Act disaster as long as they got theirs, as long as they got paid, backstopped uh, you know, by the taxpayer, and, and forced, forced people to become uh, customers of theirs. So they were fine with it. So that's a, that's a perfect example of what I'm talking about. Yeah, Elizabeth Warren is going to come together. She's going to say, oh, I'm going to reform. I'm going to reform Wall Street. And I sound like someone has grabbed a turkey by the neck and is waving it around. You know, squawk, squawk. Man, she is not charming. She really isn't. He is not charismatic. Forget charming. Whatever you want to say. But she's going to make this big show of how much she's going to you know, rock Wall Street's world. But the truth is, she's going to do some things, but then Wall Street say, okay, we'll go along. But then leave us alone and let us make our big profits. You know, maybe even give us some way to get in on transactions that the government is, is you know, forcing. The government's making people engage in, whatever that may be. So I, I got to tell you, there's there's this there's this storyline out there. The Democrats tell themselves that, oh, we're going to be able to uh, reform. You know, Democrats don't like big money in politics. That's another that's just a lie. Oh, we want to reform. We want we don't want dark money in politics. Oh, they're all about it. Elizabeth Warren's a perfect example. Oh, here's a great one. Uh, Elizabeth. Oh, you know what? Let me hit this when I come. I, I've got I got to tell you a little Elizabeth Warren fundraising story. That, that's a perfect example of exactly what I'm talking about. Hold on. I'll come right back. Stay with me. So I was going on a little bit of Elizabeth Warren. Rand. I think it's important because I believe 
that's where I'm putting my money for the Democrat nominee. I think it's going to be Warren. I still, I'm still standing firm on my, it will not be Biden. But uh, there was a story from the New York Times, no less, a couple of days ago, how Elizabeth Warren raised big money before she denounced big money. Oh, look at this. It's exactly the hypocrisy that I'm talking to you about. So back in 28, her 2018 Senate race, she was doing what Democrats do, going to very rich people and saying, you know, write me a check. That's my Elizabeth Warren impersonation. It's like Hillary, but louder. Hello. Uh, she, she wanted wealthy people to write her checks for her race then. And guess and, and so she went to people that are you know the, the high rollers, the, the big dollar donors. And now she's talking about how she's only a grassroots funded campaign. They're not taking big dollar donations. Uh, but guess what? She's a total hypocrite because she's using 10.4 million dollars that she's rolling over from her 2018 Senate race to underwrite her 2020 presidential bid. So, I mean, but this is a classic moment of exactly what I'm talking about. Warren is going around on the stump saying that, you know, people shouldn't be able to, shouldn't be relying on big dollar donors and, oh, the, the wealthy and the elite are just buying everyone off and blah, 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 all this crap. And it turns out that back in 2018, she was raising money by doing exactly that. And she's using that money now to fund her campaign. So this would be like if I was running around saying, hey, hold on a second. You can't rob a bank and then use that money to fund your political campaign. You can't do that. That's terrible. And, and people are like, well, Buck, you robbed the bank a couple years ago and you're using that money. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah but that was then. This is now. What do we always say? Defining characteristic of the contemporary liberal is just unbridled hypocrisy. A hypocrisy that is punch you in the face obvious. Hypocrisy from which there is no escape. And uh, you come away from it thinking, how could they, how could they expect any person to take their word on any of this, given how obvious it is that what they say is so different from the way that they themselves act, whether it's on money in politics, on climate change, on, uh, you know, the education system, on you know immigration, in all these areas where whenever you see libs out there who are professing how much they care about an issue, it's not a, not a surprise at all to find out that if there's any sacrifice involved in really doing something about that, they're not going to do that. They just want other they want to talk about it. They want other people to do it. Elizabeth Warren raised tons of money from rich people. And now she's saying other candidates are relying on rich people for their donations. She's using rich people money and saying it's bad. She's a huge fraud, folks, a fraud. And not just because of the fake Indian stuff. She's a fraud. <laughs> Senator McConnell was standing in the way. We passed our bill in February. 
members had events all over the country to ask him to bring up the bill. Don't ask me what we haven't done. We have done it. And if you are annoyed with my impatience, it's because people are dying because Senator McConnell hasn't acted. Why don't you go ask him if he has any regrets for all the people who died because he hasn't acted? Do what the Democrats say on gun control or you don't care about people dying. Same argument every time. Never really seems to change very much. It's what we uh, keep getting told, that you, you do what the Democrats want you to do, or you don't care about dead children, you don't care about gun violence, you're a bad person. And they wonder why we don't trust them for any kind of middle-of-the-road middle uh, solutions. They say that we're terrible people if we don't do exactly what they say. And then we're supposed to believe that if we gave them more power, say, with red flag laws or any number of these other restrictions that they talk about, that that would somehow result in Democrats being more fair minded about this. I think that that's just silly. I think that's uh, entirely unrealistic. Um, But President Trump is still out there talking about this, still discussing this as a possibility i i'm not really sure what trump's uh, trump's plans are here we're looking at background checks and we're looking at uh, putting everything together in a unified way so that we can have something that's meaningful at the same time all of us want to protect our great second amendment it's very important to all of us uh so we are now in meetings the meetings are going to go on tonight i'm going to speak with them again tomorrow And I think progress is being made. I hope so. I'm not sure that actually scratch that. I'm pretty sure that we don't want this kind of progress to be made because it's not progress. I haven't heard a single policy that would be uh, that would be a a good idea from the perspective of ending uh, gun violence. There's nothing that I listen to and I say, oh, yeah, that that's. In fact, there is a terrifying idea that's out there right now uh, called HARPA. And this is just astonishingly bad. Um, It's going to be the what the health advanced research uh, project. I mean, yeah, the health advanced research project agency, sort of like DARPA, but for health. And they say they want to. Uh. Here we go. Former NBC chairman Bob Wright, a longtime friend and associate of President Trump's, have has briefed top officials, including the president, the vice president and Ivanka Trump on a proposal to create a new research agency called HARPA to come up with out of the box ways to tackle health problems, much like DARPA does for the military, say several people who have been briefed. (sighs) Yeah, we're going to have some new agency that looks into this and tries to come up with something that how many debates now, how many times have we had to have it out in public over whether or not there's, um, there's a way to, to make this stuff, make mass murder with firearms more illegal than it already is. It's already very, very illegal. Um, but this Harpa organization would be out there looking at ways that you could try to intervene in specifically the realm of mental illness Anyone who thinks that the government would ever be able to monitor mental health accurately enough uh, 
that they would they could intervene to stop a mass shooting and not create a near totalitarian surveillance state for everybody who has any form of mental illness. And really, when we talk about mental illness, there is there's mental illness. Mental health is something that everyone struggles with. And I think this is often lost in the conversation. Uh, Everyone listening to this has at one time or another, most likely some of you perhaps are perfect and uh, had at least a little bit of what could be considered depression, a little bit of, of the symptoms of anxiety, a little bit of undue stress in your life that cause anxiety symptoms. And then you get to, well, is it at a level that's clinical where you have to go see, you have to go seek professional help and support. And, you know, people do this, whether it, a lot of people do this for, you know, marital counseling, we'll do this for alcohol abuse. They'll do this. You know, these are all mental health related issues. So when you say monitoring people for mental health, this is such a broad uh, spectrum of things that the government would have to be looking at and involved. And it's just, it's absolutely insane. No serious person can believe, no serious person should believe that there's a way to monitor the mental health of the American people and prevent somebody based on that monitoring program from uh, taking you know, violent action because of their mental illness. You have tens of millions of people in this country with diagnosed mental illnesses of one kind or another. Yes, PTSD is classified as a mental illness, uh, anxiety disorders, depression, obsessive compulsive disorder, bipolarity. There's all these different things out there that people deal with. Some of it's genetic, some of it's situational. And the stigmatization that it seems the Democrats are willing to engage in now just because they're so set on getting new gun laws passed just goes to show you, I think, that they were never serious about any of this in the first place. They were never serious about reaching out and having laws that could stop people uh, from engaging in mass shootings that also respect civil rights, that also respect privacy and dignity of individuals. Uh, They're just looking for the political leverage in the moment to get what they want, which is some form of restrictions on guns. That's it. Everything else is noise. Everything else is just filler. So, You know, I I don't think the Democrats come to this issue with any good faith. I don't think that it's really about ultimately stopping gun violence, because if it was, then we'd be focused on handguns and inner city crime. If it was really about stopping gun violence, that's where the push would be. No, it's on mass shootings and assault rifles, which are rare, meaning mass shootings, statistically speaking, and a small percentage of the overall gun, uh, gun violence problem in this country. So we will keep having this. I don't know why Trump. Well, I'm hoping that he's doing a little bit of a, you know, rope a dope here. You know, he's okay. Sure, we'll talk. We'll talk. We'll talk. And then when the Democrats, you know, when their audiences and their constituents are tired of the same talking points, we can move on to something else. If they had a good idea, I'd be open to it. They don't have good ideas. They just have status takeover. I don't like that. And I'm also sick of being uh, told all the time that because look let's be honest the conservative side keeps winning this argument on the merits over the gun control case that they make they don't understand these weapons they don't know the laws that are already on the books they don't uh, understand or care much for second amendment jurisprudence 
they keep losing the argument and then just they want to shout at us and tell us, well, it doesn't matter that they lose the argument. They still they still should uh, be able to get whatever they want from a policy perspective. And I, to this, I just say I just say no. Sorry. Not signing up for that. Not OK with being emotionally uh, ambushed and bludgeoned by the left every time there's a very bad thing that happens uh, in this country when it comes to gun violence, which is unfortunately going to happen. There's no there's no way around this. There's go, there are going to be shootings. There are 330 million people in this country. There are going to be shootings. What laws do we have and how well do we enforce those laws? That's a question to ask. Mr. President, what your announcement today, are you concerned that the companies that were making these products will will be treated unfairly by taking these products off the market? Well, they've become very rich companies very fast, and the whole thing with vaping is uh, is a uh, been very profitable. And I want companies. Look, you know that I fight for our companies very hard. If I fight, that's why I'm fighting with China. That's why I'm fighting with other countries. If you look at European Union and if you look at uh, Japan and if you look at so many others, including South Korea and many others, we're constantly dealing with them to make it good for our companies because I view it as jobs. I view it as income for our country and jobs. Uh, Vaping has become a very big business, as I understand it, like a giant business in a very short period of time. But we can't allow people to get sick and we can't have our youth be so affected. Looks like they're getting ready for a ban, folks. The Trump administration, no less. Now, we must adhere to principle. We have to be honest here. This is a little this strikes me as a little a little nanny state like maybe very nanny state like I'm I cannot get behind this. I have never smoked a cigarette. I have never vaped. Uh, but I, I, I just don't, I don't see why this is the answer. I know a lot of people who use vaping because it's uh, less dangerous, it's less problematic than, say, the uh, uh, actual traditional cigarettes, old school cigarettes, and people this. Uh, current frenzy seems to be around individuals who have died. I don't know how many Bruce Mark, how many vaping deaths have there been? Let me just be clear. Uh, I think it's very few overall. Um, Wall Street Journal says doctors and officials urge people to stop vaping. Hundreds of potential cases of pulmonary illnesses. Six deaths. Uh, six deaths have been associated with this with this illness and my understanding of this so far, and they're still figuring this out, uh, is that they think that there's a an issue here with THC lace products, I think, essentially black market versions of these products that have gotten out there. And uh, that may be the, the, the cause of this. But I've got to tell you, you know, six from the many, many people that are using this across the country, um, that, that doesn't seem like... A, look, I'm just going to say it. Six, six people dying from an illness related to something doesn't strike me as, in and of itself, a crisis. It strikes me as something worthy of inquiry and investigation. And I'm not, like, I'm not a pro-vaping guy. I don't vape myself. I just know that it, it, there's no way in my mind... Okay, let's just let's just back this up for a second there's no way that vaping 
isn't at least better for you than smoking old school tobacco. I mean, producer Mark, am I missing something? Does anyone think that, I mean, it's water vapor. How can that be anywhere near as bad for you as burning tobacco leaves and and, and inhaling acrid smoke all the time? It could be something in the vapor that's making people sick. But it's... I don't think it's as bad, but I mean, if it's causing some certain lung diseases, I see why the, the alarm. No, I, look, I, I'm not saying there shouldn't be alarm, but to me, a nationwide ban on this strikes, because think of how many people might use this stuff and then might be vaping, and that's going to prevent them from getting lung cancer. You know, when you start to look at the aggregate benefit of, of something that is safer than what, you know, the alternative is. I, I just don't see it. I, I don't understand why they'd want to ban it. And look, I, I know they're saying um, uh, they're saying that there's a, uh, you know, what do you call it? There's a, it is a gateway where we, we always hear about this. This is a, a gateway. And that's why they have all these flavors like, you know, bubble yum and pomegranate and all this stuff. So this is what we, we keep hearing about is that it we don't want kids to be uh, vaping, which is probably true, but. If we're going to have this discussion, I think we also have, have to have a discussion about we don't want kids to be drinking either. You know, we, we don't want people to be doing these things. We just don't. So are we going to, you know, bans are a bad idea. You're going to force this underground. And if, in fact, it's from faulty products. Now, people are saying, oh, Buck, but what about, you know, what about uh, people that are taking fentanyl? You know, I'm not saying banning anything is a bad idea. But you, you, there's there's not enough evidence yet that this is danger. This is dangerous at a level where a ban is required. I think it'll do more harm, more harm than good. And if it is, in fact, the case that you have black market uh, vaping products and that's what the, essentially faulty products out in the system are what is really causing these illnesses, the few the hundreds of illnesses and then people with uh, six people that have died then by banning, you're just going to increase the black market. And people seem to really like this. This is why it's a big business. And, you know, Juul and these other companies uh, continue to make a lot of money doing this. So I I just don't I don't see how the ban is going to be a good idea. And I'm a little surprised that uh, this is the response you're getting from from President Trump. You don't, producer Mark. You don't smart. Uh, smart. You don't. Sm- you don't smark. Do you? You don't. Never smark, have do you? smarked. Not You're, once. You've never smarked in your life. No, have you? I don't smoke either. Uh, have you ever smoked a cigarette? No, I never would. It never appealed to me. I mean, I had a lot of friends. I knew a lot of girls growing up. We were teenagers who smoked Marlboro Reds. They were getting after it with Marlboro Just Reds. Gross. That's that's some pretty strong stuff. I also remember being a teenager here in New York City and. And going out to bars and nightclubs, believe it or not, in my teens, um, you're from around here, so you know that's that's not that weird. But I think if, if I ever walked into a bar and saw a bunch of 15-year-olds and 16-year-olds in there, I'd be like, what is this place? Nowadays, yes. Yeah, exactly. Back that used then, to be very yeah. normal. Yeah. Everyone had fake IDs. Everybody would go into these places here in New York City, and you'd walk. It'd be, everybody would be in high school, taking shots at tequila and getting into bar fights. Which really just involved like grabbing each other and falling to the ground and being like, "You stop it, mean person!" And our our fights, Catholic school fights, were not usually particularly badass. But uh, anyway, the uh, 
the smoking ban that Bloomberg, I'm just going to say it, when Bloomberg enacted that smoking ban, this is where my, this is where my nanny state kicks in. And I'm like, you know, I kind of like it. I liked it. Change the city. It was, it was better. And I know that you could argue, oh, but what about establishments that are, you know, that want to do it differently? And I understand that I'm violating principle and I own that. I own it. Uh, But I also think that there was a little bit of a war in restaurants between the smokers and the non-smokers. And, you know, you had one group of people that really believed very, very strongly that should be able to smoke at a restaurant. So everybody else has to smell their smoke. And and it's a physical compulsion, obviously. And then you had other people who really didn't want to be smelling that. It just wasn't it wasn't a recipe for anyone to be happy. Really wasn't. It's a bad move. And to this day, you can't walk down the street without smelling cigarette smoke somewhere. Oh, yeah, of course. And weed smoke. I'm shocked by how often it is A lot of weed smoke here. Yeah. here in New York. Yeah. And the cops do nothing about it now. I yeah, guess like, it's not a felony anymore. Sometimes it's like they have weed brownies and like weed cookies. And, you you know. don't smell those, though. You don't smell them. You taste them. It tastes delicious, man. You just get in the back of a little weed truck. And you're like, hey, do you have like a blondie with the weed in it? Anyway. I, I wonder if they're really going to go forward with this ban. It strikes me as a bad idea. Um, but... You know, we, we do have to find out more of what's... By the way, you know what else we never found out about? If we're talking about mysterious illnesses that or, or people dying from, from mysterious circumstances, whatever happened to the Dominican Republic? Did we lose like nine Americans there dying from no one knew what? They thought maybe it was bootleg liquor? I had to change my whole honeymoon because of that. Did you really? Yeah. I, we were originally that. going to the DR, got a great deal, and then my soon-to-be wife was like, nope, not doing it, not taking the risk. Uh, now we're going to Jamaica. Yeah, you and a lot of other people. Yeah. yeah. They lost a lot of money. Yeah, I can imagine. Well, we'll see if this ban goes through. I hope it doesn't, because I don't like banning products that come with stated risks, but we'll see. We'll be right back with Roll Call. Hey, Team Buck, it's time for Roll Call. going to do a double sesh of the roll call tonight just because I feel like it. Just because I figure I want to hear from all of you on, on this day that a day of remembrance. You know, what do we, what do we, how do we refer to it? Obviously we refer to it as 9-11 or September 11th. Uh, it's, I, I suppose it is a day, uh, just a day of national remembrance. Um, sadness and rage are the main things that I tend to conjure up when I think about it, but I want to know what all of you are thinking, and so with that in mind, I will get to the roll call. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. Every day, I'm going to keep saying, when do we get our email? Producer Mark, do we know? No update yet. Who do, who do I have to, like, pay off here? You know, what 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 wheels do I have to grease? I'm going to send an email right now. I will I will, I will. But you can grease people. my wheels anytime. Hey, now. Uh, hey, now. I will I will, uh, you know, bribe people with bagels, uh, with croissant, with Danish, whatever it may be. I just hired a personal trainer. Don't do that. He'll yell at me. Oh, good for you, though, dude. I've been thinking about doing the same thing. Maybe we'll start working out together. What Maybe. do you think? Team Buck workouts. We could live stream that stuff, man. You might kill me, though. We'd be like Hans and Franz. My name is producer Mark, CIA and workout. I'm host Buck, and I'm here to pump you up. We could do that. Sure. Viral content. Worth it. Worth it. I'm just saying it's worth thinking about. All right. Another time. Well, when's the wedding, by the way? On November 30th. Damn, soon. That's why I, I hired the personal trainer. Dude, it's go time. It's 
go type. Yeah, you should when you do the walk down the aisle, do it, you know, walking like a handstand like that. I'll have you some know? dumbbells in my hand. I'll do it. Exactly. Exactly. You know, I hear that it's very fashionable now to to do your wedding uh wearing athletic attire, so That's what I've heard too, yeah. Exactly. So, uh, yeah, Lululemon makes a lovely tux. All right. Uh, what have I been talking about here? We've got the things. We've got all of the discussions to be had here. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. Two weeks, actually less than two weeks, until you can start downloading the Buck Sexton show at 3 Eastern every day on podcast. So I would uh, recommend that you at least subscribe. That way, if you are ever late on your radio station or you're not in the car or you want to listen in your own time, you can Listen that away, and uh, I would very much appreciate it if you would. So even if you're a radio listener, go on iTunes, type in The Buck Sexton Show in the search bar, and we roll from there. Thomas writes, Buck, my wife and I were on vacation and missed a few days of your show. When we got back home, I told her you were go- we were going to binge listen to you. Uh, to my comments, she said, Buck that. I'm sure you've heard that one before. Shields high. Well, funny, but can't we get her to maybe listen to the old shows with you? Because I feel like that's that's the best way that this should go. I mean, that that would be my. If you're asking me what my preference is, that's my preference. That's how you guys would catch up. No, we want them to listen on different iPhones or different exactly multiple iPhones and get other family members to join in, have a whole buck listening party. Thomas just watched America. Oops, no, that was old. Sorry. Hey, Buck, thanks for keeping us warm and safe at night. Or safe and warm at night. You must add one more place to your list of flip-flop acceptable places, which could be seen as a New Yorker looking down on casual fashion. Whoa, whoa, hey. In Hawaii, they are called slippers and are worn everywhere all the time. So please don't discount the Hawaii slipper legitness. Hawaii actually has a completely different fashion sense from the mainland, so there's that. Disclosure, my wife was born and raised there. Thomas OSS. Well, Thomas... Let's just let's revisit what I said. I said that there are only certain places going to the pool, going to the beach. Hawaii is essentially one giant beach. Wherever you are in Hawaii, you are within striking distance of a beautiful beach. So, yes, of course, if you are a resident of the state of Hawaii and you choose to wear flip flops wherever you go, you are theoretically en route to the beach. It's just a question of how long it takes you to get there. Whereas if you are a resident of the great state of Iowa and you are wearing flip-flops in November, to me, you should probably put shoes on. I'm just putting it out there. I think, I think that's the way. I used to walk around New York City in flip-flops. I'll tell you, this is the truth. Uh, I don't know why. I just used to think that it was kind of cool to just kick around in my flip-flops. And, and then I realized that my feet were getting dirty. And all it takes, and this is going to get gross, but I'm giving you a public safety announcement all it takes is stepping into one gross puddle of stuff with a flip-flop on instead of a shoe and then going home and thinking like oh i wonder if flesh-eating bacteria maybe seeped into this blister that i have or oh like maybe the chemicals that my foot has uh, been subjected to from the new york city streets will slowly erode it until there's nothing but a nub left. You know, these are the thoughts you have. So you don't want to go flip-flopping around New York City streets. Am I right, Producer Mark? I don't even like to touch a subway pole without using hand sanitizer afterwards. Never mind my foot. You're a man after my own heart, dude. Yeah, that's, that's what I'm talking about. That's for sure. 
Uh, let's see here. Uh, Dale writes, Hey, Buck. I actually asked for a stand-up desk at work. I've had it for two weeks and love it. I feel my productivity is up and I don't get fatigued like I thought I would standing up most of the day. Getting the right mat to support your feet is very important. I would highly recommend you give it a shot. I'd like to. I just think I'm going to wimp out, but I don't know. Maybe I'm going to get a standing desk. And in fact, it would be great to get a standing desk sponsor. So maybe I'll reach out to the sponsor and say, hey, I'm going to start using your standing desk. And if I like it, I'll tell everybody on Team Buck to buy it. I think that's the plan. I think that's what we should do. Um, But yes, indeed. Having better posture is important. That's also something that we've all learned. That's another real, a real thing. Harry. Hey, Buck. Trump's tweet advocating zero or negative interest rates is very disappointing. It leads one to begin to believe he doesn't know as much about the economy and finance as he would have us think. Superficially, what he tweeted makes sense, but in the long run, it will destroy the American dollar and economy. Have you been reading what your friends at Stansbury and others have to say about ZERP and NERP? Uh, Shields high, Harry. I read a lot of Stansbury stuff, but I have not read about ZERP and NERP. I don't know. I'm assuming that's zero interest rate policy and near i don't know what uh neutral interest i don't know what nerp is hold on let me let me do a quick um let's see what it says about nerp negative interest oh okay yeah negative interest rate policy and zero interest rate policy that makes sense um yeah no i haven't read what stansbury says about that so i should check that out ronald right love the show buck love the show Any thoughts on the Vatican saying no communion for pro-abortion politicians? Uh, I haven't seen this, Ronald, but that's what the Vatican should do. That should be the response. If you're a politician and you say you're a Roman Catholic and you are pro-abortion, they should say, no, I'm sorry, you are outside the community now. Or else, what's the point of having any of these rules? Like, what's the point of any of this? If we're just going to say, yeah, everything's fine. Remember, it's one thing to uh, engage in wrong action yourself. We are all sinners. We are all fallen. We all make mistakes. It's another thing to openly advocate for what is evil as though it were good, as though it's a right, and to have power to enact that beyond even just the platform of spreading that wrongness. So, yeah, I think that that's I think that's real. I think, uh, Ronald, that they should... uh, all of a sudden, you'd have Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden, and there are a bunch of them that would be uh, left sans communion. Now, I also think that they wouldn't really care all that much except for how it affects them politically. I know I'm making a judgment about how Catholic they are, but Nancy Pelosi doesn't strike me as a, as a deeply religious person. I think she thinks that it's necessary for her political brand, but I believe that there are a lot of politicians who look down on truly religious people, and they think that they're really that the politicians are engaged in a necessary ruse. Essentially, they are fooling people that, that need to be fooled in order for the politicians to get away with what they're doing. That's, that's the plan. Um, that's what they do. Jane writes, listening to Beto today, I'm reminded of Jim Rouse's dream for Columbia, Maryland. Columbia is now one of the richest places in the metropolitan area. They are gradually pushing the middle class out. Uh, Well, I got to take your word for it. I don't know anything about Columbia, Maryland. So sounds like a thing that's happening. I don't know. I do know that New York City gets more expensive all the time. All the time. 
and that just seems like it's not possible. Like, how, how is it that New York could just continuously be more and more expensive? But that's that is, in fact, where we are. Um, Ethan, right? Buck, I couldn't agree more with your feelings on Red Eye. Absolutely fantastic show. I got hooked on it in 2008 while stationed in Korea because it was on at 5 p.m. there, so I'd catch it, like, almost every day after work. Greg Gutfeld's show now is good, but it's no Red Eye. Uh, John Bolton wasn't just a guest. He was actually named the president of Red Eye. Look, I, I gave him credit last night on Kennedy's show. I, I think that Bolton, you know, and, and I want to be very clear about this. I don't think that John Bolton is anything but a patriot and, and somebody who thinks that he's doing a lot of good in the world, and he's a smart guy, he's a knowledgeable guy. You know, I, I'm not somebody who trashes Bolton the person. I think Bolton is wrong on some things or perhaps a bit stronger on some things than is wise, and I think that he's not a good choice for this administration. But, you know, John Bolton, I, I've, I've interacted with him. He's always been a perfect gentleman. He was funny on Red Eye, and he's very smart. And I believe that he thinks he's serving his country in the best way possible. He's not a bad guy. So I think right now there's a lot of, oh, because there's a little bit of a, of a spat between Trump and him, a lot of people are pushing him, you know, under the bus. I, I don't think that that's, I don't think it's fair to say that he's a bad guy. I think it's fair to say he's wrong. Or he's, he has been wrong on some key issues and, you know, we thank him for his service, but it's time for him to, you know, teach at university and write books and hang out. That would be my no more. No more John Bolton in positions of, of authority. You know, if, if we get invaded by the North Koreans. Wolverines. Some of you will catch that reference. Uh, actually, almost all of you will. Then maybe we bring Bolton back and say that it's it's go time. Uh, Keith. Right. Thanks for all you do. Come to Austin again, bro. Shields high. Uh, well, Keith, I haven't been to Austin yet, so I'm working on it. I have a wonderful audience down there. KLBJ Austin. I hear from a lot of you. Uh, Austin is the, the city that I dream of moving to one day. There's a few of them. Austin would be a lot of fun. Charleston would be a lot of fun. But uh, for now, I'm a I'm a city dog fighting the libs, fighting the libs here from N. Y C. And that is how we go. That is how we roll. That's what we do here in the Freedom Hunt. All right. Oh, uh, wait. We got to take a, a moment of, to catch our breath before we continue with your wonderful, insightful quips on roll call. We'll be right back. And we're back with, uh, oh, this is the Buck Sexton show, in case you didn't know. If you got to this point and you didn't know that, that would be kind of a surprise. But here we are. Kathy writes. Buck, which Pluto app? I've looked and there are several. I did download the Pluto TV app for free TV and found a channel dedicated to Doctor Who, so I am happy about that. However, I'd like to make sure I download the correct Pluto app to be able to watch you. Thanks, Kathy OSS. Kathy, yes, it is the Pluto TV app. That is where my channel will be. We'll be announcing more details of that soon. You'll be able to stream the Buck Sexton show for free on that app within a couple of weeks. So it's the Pluto TV app. Get it, get it started. Just download it on your smartphone, folks. It doesn't cost you a dime. And it's not just my show. There's other stuff that you can uh, watch, too, if you want. So, yes, indeed. Um, Brian right? I wonder how upset Beta would be if I set up a trailer in his yard. Well, Brian, that's what you keep seeing with all these libs. They pretend like they want 
poor people living next to rich people, but never them. They don't want it. You know, it's the same with uh, with refugees. Oh, America should take in just as many refugees as want to come here. But they can't go to the schools of the rich libs that say that. No, 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 no. They have to go to schools with people who are working class. They have to go into neighborhoods where people work very hard to try to save up more money, move to a bigger house, be in a better school district. Uh, those are the people that end up getting, uh, you know, refugee populations, generally speaking, uh, you know, distributed there by the federal government. It's not happening in Nancy Pelosi's neighborhood in San Francisco. That's for sure. They're not they're not putting them up in in mansions. Pelosi would not would not approve. Kyle writes, um, Buck, I've got a strong stomach, but the segment you did on the 28 week elective abortion made me a bit queasy. I remember feeling a kick through my wife's stomach at 23 weeks, and I just can't imagine someone waiting another five weeks to kill the baby for their own personal convenience. I know it's a hyperbolic statement, but I don't know how else to classify that action as other than murder. I hope that in 150 years, Americans will look back on Roe v. Wade the same way we look back on Dred Scott. Uh, that case is a stain on the moral fabric of our country. Anyone who reads the majority opinion of that case should be disturbed by the parallel lines of logic in it that exist in the modern pro-choice movement. Kyle, I think you're uh, you're absolutely correct. I actually found out from uh, uh, someone I'm very close to that someone that uh, he's very close to uh, was born three months premature. Born at six months and survived and is perfectly healthy and happy and fine today. Pretty remarkable. And uh, you know, I get look, we always you, you, you say what is good when it is good. You give credit where it is due in the instance that that is that is appropriate. You know, Tulsi Gabbard. At least she's willing to say third trimester abortion is is not okay. I, I give her credit for that. I mean, she's going to get crushed by the left for it, but that's where we are. Um, Benny writes, Buck, I laughed out loud when I saw the new James Bond vignette, a.k.a. Valerie Plame's ad, but it was also sobering because she made a provably false statement in response to Scooter Libby. What I don't understand is how the vast majority of Democrats are able to lie with such impunity i.e. Pelosi, Nadler, Schumer, etc. My moral compass does not allow me to state that something is true when it obviously isn't. How do they do this? If you watch any of the liberal pundits on Fox, they're also guilty, and I can't fathom how liberals are able to throw their reputations away so flippantly. Shields high. Benny in Mississippi. Benny in Mississippi. I don't know if that was close enough to... Was that... Did that cross the bar? Not the same syllables. Yeah, too many syllables for Benny yeah, and the Jets. Yeah, that's what it is. All right, well, we tried. Team, we're going to have a great show tomorrow and the next day. So be sure to tune in then. Talk to you then. You know what comes next. Shields high.